Good to see everybody here. We'll bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for another wonderful day, a day of grace and mercy. Your, your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for that, and we thank you for our opportunity to look into your word that we may have justice and understand justice that comes from you rather than the world. We pray that you would help us to think about what true justice is as we examine this text in the book of Proverbs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember, we are in Proverbs chapter 2. Where remember, we saw an if-then conditional, what they call a protasis, apotasis construction. And the condition was if you seek after wisdom. And then what we said is, well, wisdom comes from God. And therefore, you really have to seek after God. And then we showed, well, no one seeks after God, no, not one. Therefore, this is something that's given to the elect, given to the believer. But then we started focusing on what is the result of getting God's wisdom. And one of the big aspects of getting God's wisdom is that you will do true justice. And so today my desire is that we would focus on what true justice looks like. I think this is especially relevant in our culture today that perverts justice by claiming that they believe in something called social justice. And I think we as Christians have to be equipped with the scriptures to give an answer in the culture for what true justice looks like through the scriptures. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. But let me remind you of where we left off last week. This is Proverbs 2, 9 through 11. And again, remember the then? Let me just point that out in the very beginning here with my pointer. You see the then. Remember, that's part of the apotheosis. If you'll seek after wisdom, then... You will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. Now, remember I talked about this idea of discerning. In Hebrew, it means to pay attention to and understand. And I tried to make the distinction. When I was a flight instructor, I knew some of the students were, they're paying attention. They're trying hard, but they weren't understanding And so sometimes it took more repetitions. And so the idea is discernment, biblically, is having some mastery, not only paying attention to, but really understanding the Word of God, having a knowledge of what the Scriptures say. And so having knowledge of what righteousness and justice really are is something that every single believer will be equipped with by the grace of God. Now, I want to talk about, remember righteousness and justice? I said ultimately those flow. The ultimate standard in the universe is God. We see that in Psalm 89, 14, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Now, when that's written, what does that mean? Is it literally talking about a throne and there's components on it that are filled with righteousness and justice? Well, no, it's a metaphor, but an important one. What it's saying is that righteousness and justice are inherent to who God is. He is the standard of both righteousness and justice. And one of the key concepts that you and I want to come away with when it comes to God's righteousness and his justice is that God is not capricious in his righteousness and his justice. Now, what do I mean by capricious? In other words, God's standard does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whereas you might find human beings who will have a changing scale of justice and righteousness 
it's okay for me but not for thee. You see a lot of that in our culture. That's not the way it is with God. One day on Wednesday, if you are acting in a similar way, in other words, according to his scriptures, he's not all, all of a sudden going to be angry with your sin if you're living in accordance with what he has revealed. And so what's beautiful about God is he's revealed to us that which is pleasing. In the culture today, you have a standard of righteousness and justice that may be different a month from now than it was today. Um, I, I can't remember how many years ago it was. There were certain language things you couldn't say. Well, now it's okay to say. I'll, I'll give you just one example. Remember, for a long time, you had to say African-American. And I thought to myself, well, why did that change? Why can't we, you know, what, what happened there? Well, I think it's because of BLM. Because they started using it, um, it became okay. But you see how the standard changed. You're held as being unrighteous because you don't live up to this language code that the Marxists have come up with. That's not the way it is with God. And that, that, that should be something that is impressive to those who are being oppressed by the culture of the day. I also want to talk about this idea of equity. Isn't it interesting, the term equity, the term in Hebrew is my shreem, my shreem, and it has to do with walking a good course in life so that others are treated well. Um, yesterday, I was giving a gospel presentation or a wedding message, I should say. <laughs> there was a gospel presentation in the wedding message, but I talked about Philippians 2.4, where we are called to put the interest of others ahead of our own. That's what the idea of equity is. The idea that we look out not only for our own interest, as Paul says in Philippians 2.4, but the interest of others. And so it's very interesting as you're going to see great continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant when it comes to ethics. Why? Because it's the same God. Yahweh is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I want to talk about one of the great ethical texts that we see in the New Testament. And I want to relate it to this, the idea of having true justice. What does true justice look like? Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 7, verse 12. Now, we're going to be coming to this in our studies in Matthew. And by the way, as we turn to Matthew 7, 12, remember... Again, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus, in some sense, recapitulates the life of Israel. So, in Matthew 3, he's baptized, just as Israel went through the Red Sea. Remember, after Israel goes through the Red Sea, they end up going into the wilderness for 40 years. Well, Jesus, after he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Well, do you remember after that, there was this idea of going to Mount Sinai, that was part of the Israel's wilderness wanderings. Where does Jesus go in Matthew 5? He goes to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, why? Because he's the lawgiver that Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15. And so what he's going to give us then is the divine understanding of what is good and what is right. And notice what he says here in Matthew 7.12. He says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, notice here, this is sometimes called the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. Well, that's the basic basis of ethics in the New Testament. And it's part and parcel with loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. I can't think about, excuse me, I can't tell you how many times I've been thinking about this text when I would see, for example, in Washington, D.C., there was a family that was having dinner. It was in the evening and a bunch of social justice warriors 
ends up shooting fireworks at them. Um, maybe you, some of you have seen the video. This is six months ago. And I thought to myself, true justice says, do unto others as you'd want done unto you. I don't know how many, I, I couldn't be honest and say, yeah, I would like fireworks shot at me. <laughs> I mean, how many would say that? And yet the social justice warriors who are lecturing everyone about morality are shooting fireworks at people who are innocently sitting down for dinner with their family. What the Lord Jesus Christ would say is that's not justice at all. That's a perversion. That's the idea. So that's the kind of justice that we want to come away with. And so we'll talk more about that. But I also want you to notice that in verse 10 here, it says, for wisdom, this is why you're going to understand righteousness and justice. He says, for, this is explanatory, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. I want to talk about this idea of wisdom entering your heart. You see a lot of language in both the Old and the New Testament where knowledge seems to proceed from the heart. And we have to ask ourselves, what is that all about? Did they not understand that the heart was the organ that pumped blood? Well, no, they knew that. They used it in a metaphorical way. So for the Hebrew, the heart was the center of the thought life. They just used it in that way. It was the center of a person's intellect, their emotions, and their will. So I think of it as a term that they would use to talk about the junction of all of the thought life of a person. Emotions, will, intellect. Now, to prove that, turn your Bibles to Mark 7, verses 19 through 23. And the reason this text is important is it shows us that the battle against sin, the battle to have true justice and to think the way God does, is a battle for the mind or a battle for the heart. And they can be used interchangeably because, again, the heart is the center of one's thought life. Mark 7, verse 19 through 23. Now, remember the context of this passage in Mark. You have the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees. They are railing against Jesus' disciples because they don't wash their hands prior to eating. Well, let's ask ourselves, are they bound under the old covenant to wash their hands prior to eating? No, they are not. So these religious leaders are going beyond the scriptures. They're being capricious, rendering their just requirements according to their own whim, not according to God's word. And notice how Jesus sets them straight. He shows what the real issue is. The real issue isn't what happens outwardly, but rather inwardly. And he says in Mark seven nineteen, because it does not go into his heart, he's talking about what a man eats, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And notice it says, thus he declared all foods clean. Stop there, right there real quickly. That's a parenthetical comment made by Mark, who is an inspired writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Mark here, under Peter's apostolic authority, is functioning as a prophet. This is the very word of God. And so here you have it declared that all foods are clean. I just want to make sure everyone sees this, because I can't tell you how many times you have Christians who will follow Jewish uh, rituals who will say, well, no, we can't eat that, you can't eat this. Well... That's a violation of the new covenant. We're bound by the new covenant, not the old one. Remember Hebrews 8.13, the old covenant was made obsolete. It's been replaced, and we have a new lawgiver. That doesn't mean we're lawless. We're under the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant, but there are new standards, and so we can eat all things. Verse 20 says, and he was saying, this is what actually makes you sinful and unclean. He says, that which proceeds out of the man 
that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, murders, adulteries. Uh, Verse 22 says, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. Okay, so what is it that defiles us? Is it some external ritual that we fail to do? No, Jesus says the sin comes from the heart, the center of a man's thought life. And so that's why we see in Romans 12 too, Paul says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So Jesus, again, using the heart for the, the center of the thought life, the mind, and Paul are saying the same thing. They're saying the same thing. Now remember when it says, do not be conformed, but be transformed, the term transformed is the term that we have for metamorphosis. And so think about it. Uh, it is a kind of a cute image that as the unbeliever, we're the ugly caterpillar, and we're going to have a metamorphosis into that beautiful butterfly as we learn to think as God would have us, and we seek true justice and righteousness that's revealed in his word. That's, a, I think, a neat image to have in our minds. Now, I want to continue here, and I'm going to come back to this idea of true justice, but I want you to see here in verse 11 where you have this personification of discretion. Notice discretion will guard you and understanding will watch over you. Now, where do both understanding discretion and having understanding come from? That comes from God's word. And here they're being personified as something that will watch over us. In other words, they will protect our lives and our reputations because we will no longer act like the thug on the street. We don't have the type of justice where we shoot fireworks at people as they're sitting at dinner and therefore suffer repercussions. We don't act as the world does. We don't ambush the innocent and therefore at some point in our lives suffer the repercussions. Now, remember, the book of Proverbs is about generalities. Someone might say, well, yeah, what about the decent and these communist countries and they're the ones who are persecuted and put in jail? That is true. But remember, the book of Proverbs is dealing with generalities. Generally speaking, in most cultures, if you act in a decent way, you'll be treated better. That's just the way it is. Okay? Um, one thing I want to point out, and we talked about this yesterday. I was talking with someone. Again, remember, without generalities, there can be no wisdom. But with, with never having any specific examples, you don't really have anything to base this a generality on. And so I, uh, I learned this from a man named Dennis Prager. Some of you know him. When he debates, anytime he has a generality, he'll give at least one or two specifics. Okay, here's my generality. Here's my specific, which illustrates my generality. And if someone says, well, that's a generality, you say, well, that's how you gather wisdom. When you throw things up, they come down. There's a pattern there, (laughs) right? And if you can't see patterns in life, then you have no wisdom. That's the idea. So we can't fall into that idea where if you see patterns in life, somehow it means you're mean-spirited or something like that. No, it's what leads to wisdom. Okay, so let's talk about this question then. Where does true justice come from? It comes from God's word. And I want to talk about this idea of having true righteousness and true justice based on God's word. And I want to talk about a little bit of this critical race theory. I talked about it last week in my message, or a few weeks ago in my sermon. And there I talked about three things that the critical race theorists do that really are against God's justice. 
The first one is they're advocating the bearing of false witness. And that's a big deal. It's funny, I have not heard that um, in any of our discussions that we see in the culture, even in the church culture, that this is just a a formula, CRT, for teaching people to bear false witness against others. So I want to start there with this idea of bearing false witness. Remember, that's the ninth commandment, Exodus 20:16. But I want you to turn to Exodus 23, 1 through 3. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have an idea of what justice looks like from God's word. My prayer is by the end of this slide. And we're going to have some ammunition that we can share with others in the culture to really challenge them whether or not the social justice they're seeing lines up with God's word. Exodus 23, 1 through 3, this idea of bearing false witness is now being expounded upon. Listen to what was revealed to Moses. Exodus 23, 1 through 3, Moses says, You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. So notice this idea of doing justice. I want to focus on verse 3 for just a moment. Uh, Verses 1 through 2, don't give false witness, right? Don't say something false against someone. But notice in verse 3, in our culture, this is a big, big radical change from how the culture thinks. You're not to be partial to a poor man. Now, before we go any further, I just want to mention that this is under the Old Covenant. And we might say to ourselves, well, wait a minute, this is Old Covenant. What are we bound to under the New Covenant? In this instance, the same thing. James 2.9, we shall not show partiality. For showing partiality is sin, James says. Okay, so this isn't something just in the Old Covenant. It's in the New Covenant as well. Now, I remember some years ago, um, Elena Kagan, I believe it was. It could have been Sotomayor, but I think it was Elena Kagan. She's one of the Supreme Court justices, and she is going through the nomination process. And she tells, under examination by the Senate, that her goal in being a justice would be to support the poor in any dispute. And I remember she actually used that term. And I thought, wow, that is exactly the opposite of the Judeo-Christian ethic, which in some sense founded the Western world. And I'm not saying that because you have a Judeo-Christian ethic, you're a Christian. That comes by faith alone and Christ alone. But what I'm saying is we're seeing a wholesale change in the standard of ethics where the Judeo-Christian ethic is being put aside and the Marxist ethic is coming in where you shall favor the poor. Why should you favor the poor if you're a Marxist? because they're the have-not. And in order to create this dialectic where you're going to evolve into perfection, you have to take from the haves and you have to give to the have-nots. And so Elena Kagan's religion is Marxism, and that's supplanting now the old ethics that came ultimately from the Book of Moses. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and not only Elena Kagan, but many of our liberal supposedly Christian denominations officially, you know, officially get behind that. And the idea is this. As an individual Christian, I am to practice charity. I'm to, I'm to practice biblical values. And I do that as an individual. But when, but when 
a church denomination or an individual church or group of people advocate that you force. You force everyone to do things and to then pervert biblical values by, uh, you know, make it the official policy of the government to to actually um, give preference to the poor man or, or the rich man, either way. Right, either you know, one. But so right. we've got a tremendous problem with uh, what I would call mainstream Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the denominations are just totally uh, in the tank with this stuff. Yeah, well said, Eric. Yeah, and so the goal in true justice, as God is laying out, is that it really is blind. It just goes by the facts of the case. And, um, yeah, Bob. I was thinking of a verse... You know, as we're talking about this? Yes. The bigger picture is, and I can't, I can't remember where the verse is. I don't have a concordance. Yeah. But there's somewhere where it says, Do not enter into dispute with your servant, because in thy sight no man living is righteous. Sure. So if we are demanding justice from God right now, yeah. and we're not right with God, justice is very scary. It is. Does it that is. make sense? Absolutely. We want mercy. Right. So okay. what we really need is mercy. Amen. That's where this all goes. Yeah, yeah that's, and that's the gospel. Amen. So even if we're able to be better people and treat people rightly, which we ought to, yeah. the one who says, I demand what I've got, com- I've got coming, I want it right now, okay. <laughs> right. That would be scary. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't want to say that because I'm not, who am I? That's right. God is a merciful God, but we need forgiveness. Yes. And what I'm concerned about is that the same beliefs and values of the pagan culture is on signs up and down the street yeah. and in, in churches. So I don't think, yeah. I don't think churches as we know, know it, yep. have known them, are really... Uh, got this right because most of the people don't really know Christ. Yeah, amen. Yeah. So be yeah. careful if you demand justice because <laughs> you might get it. They might come, and the only way we'll be right before God is through the blood atonement that Jesus provided once for all. Amen. Well said. Um, and real quick, Brian, before you start, uh, next week Bob gave a great segue, and the message I'm going to be talking about in Matthew. We're going to talk about how Joseph put Mary away, being a just man. Mm. And the issue is true justice, according to the law, would have her stone. Remember, he believes that the only way she had a child initially was through another man. It was not revealed to him yet that it was by the Holy Spirit. But it says being a just man, he put her away, not wanting her to be shamed. And so we're going to talk about just what Bob said, that true justice in God's economy ends up leading to having mercy. And we'll talk about how Joseph foreshadows the mercy that his very son gives out of Isaiah 42. So we'll talk about that. Yes, what the average person really should want is mercy, mercy from God. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. You mentioned, we'll uh, over there. You mentioned Dennis Prager earlier. Uh, he also tells a story of he's a, uh, a symphony uh, orchestra conductor. Yes. And he uh, often tells the story of when these big 
orchestras give auditions, they're always, well, they used to always be yeah. blind auditions. And, and the reason that they're mm-hmm. blind auditions because they didn't care who was who, what they cared about who was the best. Right. And so they went into that with uh, uh, blindfolded. And, and you yeah. see in our justice system, it's supposed to be blind judgment. Now it's eyes wide open. That's very well said. Yeah, there, not to be partiality. That's a good example. I never thought of that. Very good. Yeah, a good example of not being, uh, not being partial. That's one of the things we're called to. Yes, Christy. Um, I just was thinking how uh, the evil in this world and the evil force in this world is constantly trying to place, replace the good things of God in um, all these areas. And what God's word says is he is the one who is going to offer all things free and without cost and that comes at a future time in revelation yes. twenty two seventeen. the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost and then i think that references to isaiah 55 yeah. one through whatever yeah. but that's where this kind of equity is going to eventually come without cost to all that God places his grace and mercy upon. Amen. Yeah. But well that, it's, it's the evil agenda to replace all the good things of God with a false promise. Amen. Replacing Jerusalem with Babylon. Replacing the kingdom that he brings by his grace by human works. And you're absolutely right. Changing his ethical standards for the ones of the world. And it really is Isaiah 520, that woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Everything's going to be turned upside down. And this is what we see encapsulated one day in the future man of lawlessness. The Antichrist is the one who supplants what Christ has revealed to give his own revelation for what's good and good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, uh, Paul. In Matthew 7:12, the golden rule that you, you mentioned before, yes. it seems on the surface of things that, that uh, Marxism could use that. In other words, just get along get along with other people. Sure. But how do you reconcile that with the concept of in the world but not of the world? How could you... Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, Paul, I see it more as an attack against Marxism um, because in every instance in Marxism around the world, it's always been the masses do this, but we and the upper echelon of the Marxist party, we do that. Um, in other words, Stalin didn't have to live out the consequences, but the peasants did. Um, in decolicization of the Ukraine, millions of Ukrainians starve while Stalin eats a healthy meal. Um, you, you have the Marxists, again, I mentioned just the example always sticks in my mind. They're shooting fireworks at people sitting at a dinner, but it's not done to them. Um, you have the looting of people's buildings, but it never comes to Martha's Vineyard. Um, and so it's this idea of we want the peasants and those treated this way, but it's not to ever to come upon us. They never have to live out what they teach. And so I think that this is a great remedy to the Marxist problem. Um, how many times anybody in here seen a university be looted or pillaged? But it's okay to do that to the churches. It's okay to do that to the businesses. Um, do you see what I'm saying? So it's this idea where the Marxist elites say it's okay for you to be pillaged and you don't get the police. But then at the Capitol building, don't dare touch this. It's pristine and we're going to have the National Guard around that. You don't get the cops, we do. Um, one of my favorite examples is with the ATF. The ATF sells thousands of guns to the drug cartels, but I can't own a firearm. 
That's where they're going. And so it's always this, it's okay for me to be protected, but not you. It's that kind of idea. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, everyone, anyone ever hear him? Does a very good job of explaining that sort of thing. So that's where I think doing unto others as you want done unto you, it's not okay to loot your place. It's not okay to loot my place. It's not okay for that person to be mistreated and murdered. It's not okay for that person to be... So that's the, the way that I think we should think. And I think it's a good corrective to the Marxism that we see. Marxism is never, be, it's never started by the masses. It's always in every instance, whether it was Lenin, Stalin, whether it was Mao, Pol Pot, whoever it was, it's always started by the intellectual elite who never have to live out the effects of their false doctrine. Yes? Yeah, uh, on the same line here with the Matthew seven twelve. See, I, as a voter, as a person in the United States, I know that I would not want the government to take 50% of my property. Sure, For example, sure. and I would not wish that on anyone else. Right. No matter how much property they have. So, you know, if in a free election situation that I have a chance to vote... Yes. Which we do. We have the chance to vote and to advocate because we have freedom of speech. I cannot in good conscience, because I know Matthew seven twelve. I would not want our government to decide to take half of my property or, or half of the earnings that I make in a year or 70%, which at one time... We took 70% right. of certain people's income. That was, I'm a CPA, so that's the way the tax law worked. We have an expert on the field yeah, so, here. Yeah. So, in other words, I can't support Marxism because of the golden rule. Absolutely. You know, I just, I wouldn't want that done to me, so I'm not going to vote for that to be done to others. Well said. The progressive code is literally do that to that guy what I don't want done unto me. What's the tax rate under the new or the old covenant? It's 10%. 10%. It was a flat tax. The only government ever run by God had a flat tax. Isn't that something? Yeah. And then if you say that today, you're considered evil. What are those who call evil good and good evil, right? So let's, um, somebody, if someone has a microphone next to them and has a Bible, could someone read Proverbs 6? 16 through 19. It ties into the things that God hates. And one of the sins that God hates... Oh, I'm sorry, Carly, you've got something back there. Oh, good. What is it, Proverbs 1? I'm sorry, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Rich will read that for us. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. So a false witness who spreads lies is one that God hates. And so I think about how that ties into this idea of not bearing false witness. When we have people saying that a whole group of people are guilty of certain sin namely being racist, again, they can't know that because they're not omniscient. They're simply bearing false witness. Okay, and so we have to keep in mind this is something that God is not pleased with. And I want you to see the remedy to this. We see it not only in the old covenant, but also the new. Anytime there's something going to be leveled against someone, a charge, 
there are to be witnesses to establish that charge so that it's not just at the whim of the accuser. Notice Deuteronomy 19. Please turn your Bibles there. Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through 19. We're going to look at what is required to level an accusation against another person in Israel. Yes, Brian. Yes. Why does it, why does it say in Proverbs uh, 6.16, why does it say there are six things, and then it says, yes, seven? Yeah, um, I, I think he adds. He adds to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's almost... Right, it's a poetic... It's actually a, like a poetic um, structure. There's assonance in the Hebrew. So it kind of is like a, a sing-song, rhyme-along, uh, to bring you along, <laughs> if that makes sense. So it's actually kind of... A lot of Proverbs, by the way, in Psalms, they do use this poetic structure, and it's so that people would remember it. In fact, what's interesting is the Jews, they had an oral culture, and they would memorize huge amounts of Scripture because they would have this assonance. Do you, um, let me give you an example of what assonance is. Does everyone, this is the one that sticks out in my mind. Do you remember Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel? There's assonance in the Hebrew that you don't say in the English. It'll talk about how the ungodly that's, that are at Babylon, they build their building with bricks, the Tower of Babel. But then as God undoes it, it kind of rhymes. And he undo, undoes the bricks, and it all rhymes. And so as they're doing it, you're seeing this rhyme in Hebrew where they're building of the bricks and God is taking them back. That's almost the, the image behind it. So what man does by their works, God undoes by his power. And the assonance, the rhyme, kind of drives that into your mind. And so, yes, yeah. And I'm let, sorry, then we'll have... Uh, let me just say that that's why I appreciate this type of format that we do, because I would have thought about that if I didn't ask it for the next week. I, I couldn't okay. get it out of my head, so... Yeah, I know. Lay awake until 3 in the morning, right? Right. I'm sorry. Oh, there's, there's the question, uh, uh, concern, or question, comment, Laverne. My Rolodex is slow this morning, sorry. I just wanted to clarify about false witness because what yeah. I understood it to be was you're telling, you're, you're using the words that the person spoke, essentially, yep. but wrong implication. Like, for instance, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, sure. he was speaking of the temple of his body, but they used that against him because yep. you would think it was the temple which took centuries to build. Right, right. So um, the way we're using it, are we saying what someone has stated, but yet wrong implication, using it against them? That's the true meaning of false witness, I thought. Um, I, I think that's part of it. But I also think, like when we see Exodus 23 explained, it would be any time that we would bear false witness in the sense that we say somebody did something and it's not true. Or we say somebody did something and we can't know it. And so this explains then why in Deuteronomy 19 and even in Matthew 18, we're called to have two or three witnesses. In fact, you see it in 1 Timothy 5 where elders are held to the same standard, that no accusation be leveled against an elder without two or three witnesses. It's not that the elder is above, but that the elder has to be held at the same standard that another believer does in Matthew 18. And so I think certainly you're right, Laverne, in that that's in keeping with bearing false witness, uh, what you refer to, but I think it's more than just that. And I think we see that like in Exodus 23 where you can have witnesses in a court proceeding and they're simply lying about what's going on. 
And so the idea is misrepresenting the truth about someone to slander them, to simply say, I want to make them look bad, either so that they undergo criminal prosecution or that the world will malign them, is in some sense before God a murder of their reputation. And I'll show you that later on. We'll get into a passage about the loiteros, the slander. 1 Corinthians 6, the slander does not have part of the kingdom of God. What does the slanderer do? They, they make misrepresentations about another human being. So yes, you're right, that is part of bearing false witness, but it doesn't exhaust it. Does that, does that make sense? Very good. And I think that Exodus 23 hopefully illustrates that as well. But we'll also see that now in the Deuteronomy 19. Oh, I'm sorry, we got Peter and we got, or we got, um, on behalf of Tom, Peter. Yes, Peter, Tom. Just a quick question. You know, I think sometimes as a Christian we become uh, resistant to say anything. Yeah. Uh, only because of the fact that maybe we don't know what the truth is. Uh, and so when yeah. it says bear fault witness, I think we sometimes have a resistance or a fear that that's the case. In the Bible, um, where do they talk about uh, calling people out, uh, becoming somebody that would be a whistleblower to, uh, you know, something that is wrong, like is happening right now, and, and speaking up for the truth? But a lot of people just don't know, you know, what it is, so they don't say anything. Well said, Tom. I've never heard, and maybe I'm just ignorant, but I've never heard in the public discourse in our country or in academic settings, why doesn't someone stand up and say, how do you know that? All of you who are alleging every person who's been born white is a racist, how do you know that? Let's hear your evidence. And if you won't supply evidence for it, you're bearing false witness. And I think you're right. I think what it shows is just the ignorance of the average American that they don't even know that they're engaged in bearing false witness, doing evil, distorting justice by being engaged in critical race theory. They don't even know it. So you're right, it's, it's a sad uh, indictment. I remember reading years ago some letters from a Civil War soldier. He was citing Isaiah, talking about God's providence and mercy and all sorts of doctrinal issues. He talked about propitious acts. And I thought, my goodness, um, you couldn't teach this in the seeker-sensitive churches now. And yet this common soldier in the Union Army knew more theology uh, than your average seeker-sensitive pastor. And that's the problem, is you have... In some sense, the foolishness of the world really um, invading the church and the pulpits. And it's, Bob, it's what Bob has shown us, that Christendom is not Christianity or uh, in, endowed with true believers. So, yeah, very good comment. Thank you. Um, let me read now from Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19. Let's read that about the witnesses that are required. Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19, verse 16, it says, If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing. Now, stop there. Uh, Laverne, this might address your issue. I think this ties into bearing false witness. So this is going to be a false accusation made, right? Verse 17, it says, Then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly... And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So notice, if you make a false accusation, God considers you the one guilty of it. So let's take that to CRT. If you're telling someone that they're a racist and you don't know that, you become the racist. 
That's the idea. Do you know the only place now that they do a lot of segregation and they do it by fiat within their organization is in left-wing academia. They do it in the college campus. They do it in their dormitories. In America, we were against segregation. We were for desegregation because in God's economy, there's no slave nor free nor Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female. We don't care about race, right? But that's happening in the left. Why? Because they're actually the ones who are the racist. And so that's what I want you to see. Marxism is a falsehood that's distorting this idea of true justice. So if we are going to make an allegation against someone, it must be true. And in the biblical economy, it has to be enforced by two or three witnesses. You see the same thing under the new covenant in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, if there's going to be accusations made against someone, it's to be made with two or three witnesses. Um, When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he has two and three witnesses. He has Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and he has the Heavenly Father who says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. There's two, three witnesses right there um, showing us that these things are true. So God uses this all all the time. Now, what if we just go about make false accusations against someone simply because we either want them to suffer some sort of penalty under the legal code or we want to impugn their, their character. Well, notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, what, the reason I'm doing this is I want you to see that this idea of bearing false witness is not simply an old covenant idea. It's a new covenant idea. Okay, so we're under the new covenant. Where do we see that bearing false witness is a bad idea under the new covenant? Well, notice what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Notice what Paul says here. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, stop there. He's going to give a list of what unrighteousness looks like. He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Does everyone see the term reviler in that list there? That's the the version I have. I think that's New American Standard, if I recall. I copy it from my logos. But the the term reviler there is, in the the Greek, it's loiteros. The loiteros, which is the slanderer. The one who makes a false accusation. Now, sometimes it can be used uh, uh, for someone who's maligning God's character. You can slander or revile God. But often it's used with human beings against other human beings. In fact, it's used three times in the Septuagint of Proverbs to refer to the contentious person who simply accuses others. One of my favorites, and by the way, you women, um, this can be reversed the other way too, but I love Proverbs 25, 24, where it says, it is, just jot that down, Proverbs 25, 24, it says, it is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. The contentious woman is the loiteros, the one who's constantly making accusations against her husband. You're this, you're that. Um, how many years ago, one of my favorite commercials of all time was during football, they would show this referee, an NFL referee, and he's being chewed out by one of the coaches. 
And the announcer says, how does the guy take a tongue lashing like that? Where does he learn to do that? And then it breaks away to hours earlier when he's at home and his wife is reading him the riot act, you know, and it just shows this guy has been just, you know, pistol whipped by his wife too. So anyway, I thought of that. The loiteros, the contentious woman. <laughs> but the point is being the loiteros, bringing false accusations against someone is certainly an evil that according to the Apostle Paul who speaks for Christ is something that is consistent with those who are going not to the kingdom of God but are going to be under the wrath of God. That's the idea. Now, the other thing is I want you to see, and I want to make this connection because I want you to see that to be the loiteros is to line up with Satan because Satan is the accuser, literally the slanderer of the brethren. So this is, I have three prongs in kind of my approach to CRT. Number one, we say you can't, well, it's, the big rubric is you can't know what you're claiming. God alone knows the heart. But three sins under CRT, number one, they're bearing false witness. Number two, they're lining up with the accuser of the brethren. Okay, now where do we see that? Note, turn your Bibles to Revelation 12.10. I want everyone to see this. Revelation 12.10. Please turn your Bibles there. And I want you to see the one who accuses the brethren day and night is Satan. So now you have people that are accusing the brethren because there are brethren among white people of a certain sin and they have no evidence of it. They're lining up with Satan. But because they don't know their Bible, they don't know they're lined up with Satan or they don't care. Revelation 12.10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation... And the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So here Satan is being thrown down. By the way, this is what happens in the 70th week of Daniel, in the last seven years. And I believe it happens particularly at the, at the time of the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half. So why does hell come to earth, as it were, during the last seven years? Because Satan is thrown down. So currently he is in heaven. He's making allegations and accusations against us, but our sin debt has been paid in full by Christ on the cross. And when you read Colossians 2, that's exactly the point. Christ nailed the debt that was against us to the cross and said it was paid in full. That's what he did, so none of the accusations stick. But nonetheless, it's evil to make those allegations. It's evil to line up with Satan and make allegations that are false against people. Okay. Now, let me have you turn to another passage in the New Testament, one that often confuses people. I was confused by this for many years, and I'll explain why. James 4, 11 through 12. Please turn your Bibles there. James 4, 11 through 12. And this is about not speaking against one another. This is why we ought not to be as believers a contentious people and make allegations against one another. James 4, 11 through 12. James says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Now, verse 12 explains why. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? 
Notice, if we make false allegations against another brother or sister, if we speak out against them and become the loiteros, we are usurping the law. And you might say, well, how are we usurping the law if we're holding perhaps a real sin against them? Well, notice in verse 12 it says there's only one lawgiver and judge. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the new covenant, we can point one another's sins out to help in the process of restoration. That's for sure. But if we are those who make false allegations and false accusations like the loiteros, then you and I are lined up with Satan and we've replaced the lawgiver, the true one who is Christ over the church. Another element of this is that the true understanding of the law, and we're going to talk about this next week in our sermon, results in giving mercy. That's what we're going to see. The, we're going to see a text in Isaiah 42 where when the righteous servant of God comes on the scene of history, a bruised reed he will not break, in a dimly burning wick, he will not snuff out. Why? Because he's one who shows mercy. Why does Joseph put his wife away so that she doesn't endure ridicule? Because he's one who, in, who shows mercy. That's why he's called a just man. So you see then that justice with our brothers and sisters requires us to be merciful. The world won't be. The world is lined up with Satan the slanderer, always accusing, always making false accusations, always the loiteros. And so that's the fundamental issue that I want you to see that's different between Christian ethics and true justice as opposed to social justice. In social justice, the world is lined up with Satan, the accuser of the brethren, making false accusations. They're the loiteros. We are to never to be that. We are to be those to say, hey, if I'm going to establish that this happened, I want to have two or three witnesses. Yes, we speak out against sin. Yes, we rescue our brothers and sisters from it. Matthew 18, if we go to a brother or sister and, we, and they listen to us if they're sinning, we've won our brother and sister. But notice we go privately. We always handle sin or accusations in the arena in which it occurred. And why? Because we don't want to embarrass. We don't want to wreck their reputation. Now, if they don't listen, remember, we bring two or three witnesses so that by every fact, by, excuse me, by two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. Where does that come from? It comes from Deuteronomy 19. There is a reapplication of the law. The old covenant and the new covenant speak with one voice about making false accusations. Yes, Barb. Uh, what you were saying about not... Um, judging a brother or slandering a brother reminded me of earlier in James um, chapter 2 where it says uh, verses 12 and 13 speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful mercy triumphs over judgment amen exactly right that is an astute reading. You get free coffee, Barb. <laughs> I think that ties in exactly to James 4, that not to speak out against a brother and therefore being a judge of the law. The reason they're a judge of the law is because they don't show mercy, which is the requirement of the law. I, and that's in context with that passage you just read in James 2. Absolutely. Well said. So, and we'll look at that again next week in the sermon, that true justice looks forward to mercy. Now, 
Next week, I'll talk a little bit about, is it okay, therefore, for a judge in the state to just let a murderer go? No. That would be unjust. Why? Because the role of the government is to what? Restrain evil. Restrain evil. That's why it says in Genesis 9-6, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. You see that reiterated in Romans 13-4, where the government does not bear the sword in vain. So don't take this idea of mercy and heap it upon a, a police officer or a judge that's trying to restrain evil. They have a different role. Uh, the U.S. Marine or the U.S. soldier who's in battle against a terrorist, they have a different... Uh, by the way, it's very tough for a lot of Christians to be in the military because there's confusion over these passages. They have to restrain evil and take out the evildoer. But yet in their personal life as a believer, they should be those who show mercy. When they're at odds with their wife, they're to show mercy. When they're at odds with another person or coworker, they're to show mercy. But when it comes to the murderer or the thief, they have to bring the wrath of the arsenal of the state to bear and therefore restrain evil. And so we as Christians, if we don't get these things right, these categories, our world will never get it right. We are called to be salt and light. When Christ calls us to do that, the part of the salt is a preserving agent in our world. Not the idea that you and I are going to make every single person on the planet a Christian and bring about the kingdom, but there's a preservation of God's order and what is right and wrong through God's people. But if God's people are confused over the moral issues, the world has no chance. They're not going to sit and have a discussion like this in academia. They're not going to discern what the loiteros is and the slanderer. But brothers and sisters, that's our privilege. Our privilege is to look at what true ethics and true justice really is. Again, what I love is the fact that justice and righteousness always go back to God and that he is the foundation of it. Do you remember in the beginning of our message that I gave today, I said that in Psalm 89:14 it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Do you know what also right after that it says proceeds from him? It says loving kindness and truth proceed from him. The term loving kindness is that term chaset. It's, 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 hard, it's so hard for English translators to translate that because it's really the basis of God's grace and mercy. Sometimes it's re- rendered covenant love. And so you'll see different versions struggle with how to render it. But let me just say this. I think chaset is the basis of God's mercy and grace. Remember, um, grace and mercy are just two sides of the same coin. If you're given God's grace his unmerited favor, by definition, you've also been given his mercy where you don't get what you do deserve. Grace, you get what you don't deserve, good things. Mercy, you don't get what you do deserve, the wrath. Right? Uh, Eric. Yeah, I heard, I heard someone define it or say the same idea with that word chesed as God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, which is really, I love that because, yes. you know, how many of us have heard God helps those who helps themselves, <laughs> which is not in the Bible. Right, right. But, but God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, that explains so much if you understand that concept. It does. Very good. I love that. We're in America, we love the Marlboro Man. We love John Wayne. And by the way, I like his movies too. But it's always pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you go into the wilderness and you have a, a matchbook and you've got a 
you know, a knife and you build a house and you're just a strap and do it yourself kind of fellow, right? You're a MacGyver all the way. Do it yourself. But you're right. God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. One of my favorite images, and I know I've told this story before, but remember in the Old Testament, we have the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was a son, remember, of, of Jonathan. Jonathan was a son of Saul. Saul was the contender to the throne. He dies. Jonathan dies. And David, because he made a covenant and he had cassette, unconditional love, grace, mercy for his friend Jonathan, he asked, who can I show my cassette to? Well, they say, well, there's really no one left of Jonathan, but there is this one man. His name is Mephibosheth. Do you know what his name really means? I believe the best rendering from the Hebrew is a shameful one. That's what it means. So can you imagine, who's left in Jonathan that I can show mercy to? It's a shameful one. And where does he come? He comes from Lodavar, low meaning no, no place, no pasture. So you have a nobody from nowhere. You've got a no good nothing. I mean, this is from the Hebrew, from nowhere. And you talk about undeserving, and you know what? He's crippled. So he can't do anything. He's a no good nobody from nowhere who's crippled. But David is going to do what? The king of Israel, who was foreshadowing the work of the future Messiah that comes from his lineage, he's going to show chaset. And so he brings Mephibosheth to his throne room, to to his headquarters, King David does. And do you remember Mephibosheth is probably just gulping because he knows that the way it was in those days, if you were a contender to the throne of the king because he was of the lineage of Jonathan, you were to be put to death. So he fully expects this, but when he comes to David in the throne room, David says, you're going to eat at my table forevermore. Don't you love that? Can you remember what Mephibosheth's response was? Mephibosheth doesn't say, boy, I sure deserve that. I'm obviously a son of Jonathan. He says, what am I but a dead dog that I should eat at the king's table forever? That's chassat. And that's what the ethics look like for the people of God. We're not the ones who shoot the fireworks at the people having dinner. We're the ones who shall chassat. Let me love you. Let me give you the tender mercies that were shown to me. That's the ethical difference between the people of God and the world. We're the ones who know that true justice leads to chassat. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your chassat, your loving kindness that it's upon us always because of your faithfulness, not because of who we are or what we have done. I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters. I pray, Heavenly Father, for their protection. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd give us ample opportunity to explain to the world the difference between your justice, Lord, and your mercy um, as as opposed to the world and their distorted understandings of justice. I do pray for my brothers and sisters and their perseverance. I also pray for Bob today for the sermon in 1 Corinthians. I pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear, that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers. And we thank you for the opportunity to come and learn your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.